0: Welcome to 3 Thoughts On. This is Rafael and I am a seeker of useful information and knowledge. In this podcast, I take difficult and interesting topics. I try to distill them into consumable and actionable nuggets of information that you can then use to develop your own opinions. In this second episode, we will discuss 3 thoughts on the human brain. Thought number one, why do we have a human brain? For centuries, scientists have been fascinated by the human brain. It's a marvel of evolution and arguably the most complex part of the human body. Thanks to advancements in technology, behavioral science, and research techniques, scientists have learned more about the human brain in the last 20 years than in all previous centuries. This new knowledge helps us understand ourselves, our behavior, and how to prevent or treat neurological diseases. However, it also helps us to have a better understanding on why our human brain is capable of so much more than the brains of our cousins in the mammalian kingdom. Why is our brain the way it is? Let's go back in time for some answers. According to Richard Rangman, professor of evolutionary biology at Harvard, if we go back three million years ago, our ancestors kinda look like us, but not quite. They were capable of walking upright, but they were also great tree climbers. They were the size of chimpanzees, and their bellies and facial features were similar to that of modern apes. These were the Australopithecines, and their brains were not much larger than that of a modern-day chimpanzee. Fast forward 700,000 years and a new species appears, the habilines. Habilines were the same size as australopithecines, with long arms and jutting faces. However, they figured out how to make knives, and their brains were almost twice as big as those of living non-human apes. By about 1.9 million years ago, some of these habilines evolved into Homo erectus. In his book, Catching Fire, Professor Rangman tells us, quote, Homo erectus looked much more like us than any prior species. They are considered to have walked and run as fluently as we do today. Their various descendants, including the Neanderthals, more than a million years later, all exhibited the same form and stature." Although the Homo erectus had larger brains than the habilens, they still had smaller brains and lower foreheads than modern humans. This two step evolutionary process that helped the Australopithecines evolve into habilenes and then the habilenes into Homo erectus, which, by the way, was hundreds of thousands of years apart, could have not been driven by the same cause. Rangham tells us that meat eating can account for the first transition. It was the addition of meat to their vegetables, fruits, and nuts that transformed the chimp-looking australopithecines into the knife-making, bigger-brain, habiline. This was, as far as we know, the first major transition from an ape-like brain to a more human-like brain. But what about the second transition? Although I am focusing on the changes that led to our modern brains, it is important to note that the entire anatomy of our ancestors was being affected in parallel. For instance, in the second transition, the Homo erectus ended up with smaller jaws, smaller teeth, and a smaller gut than their ancestors, all while having a bigger brain. How did this happen? Cooking. Yes, according to Wrangham and others, these changes were jump-started when our ancestors changed their diet from only raw to include cooked food. We will come back to this in a minute. Dr. Susana Herculano-Hauser of Vanderbilt University tells us that our human brain is larger than it should be given our size, consumes more energy than it should, six calories per billion neurons per day, which is 25% of our daily energy budget, and has more neurons in its cerebral cortex than that of any other mammal. Of the average 86 billion neurons in a human brain, 16 billion are in the cortex. Yet, there's nothing special about our brain. We humans are just arranged a bit differently than other primates. She tells us our brain is just a primate brain with many more neurons for a given body site than any other primate, and it was cooking that enabled this evolutionary process. The ratio between body and brain size is easily explained via metabolic consumption calculations. The energy we consume has to be divided across our entire anatomy. But neurons in particular are expensive, so the number of neurons in a primate brain is inversely proportional to the body size of that primate. Herculano-Hauser tells us that a primate that eats eight hours a day of raw food can afford at most a brain with about 53 billion neurons and a body of no more than 25 kilos. That's about eight to nine hours of chewing per day. But thanks to our ancestors, we don't have to do that because we cook. Cooking allows the digestive process to begin outside our body by making hard and stringy foods digestible, as well as poisonous roots and herbs innocuous. Cooking makes food safer, creates new tastes, and reduces spoilage. But cooking does something that is far more important and relevant to this discussion. It increases the amount of energy our bodies obtain from food. And it is this extra energy that gave us a biological advantage and a larger brain than any other primate. Wrangham tells us that this was just the beginning. Once our ancestors had that extra energy, they reproduced better, their bodies responded by biologically adapting to cook food. Their anatomy, physiology, psychology changed, and that in turn led them to change the environment and the societies they lived in. Our ancestors didn't have to chew for long hours per day. They had time to use those extra neurons to observe the world and observe themselves. And that led to language, agriculture, and the world you see today. So far, scientific data teaches us that we have a human brain because of fire and cooking. Thought number two. What is the human brain for? The human brain is the body's control center and part of the central nervous system, or CNS. Some scientists define the CNS as the brain and the spinal cord, while others also include the retina optic nerve, olfatory nerves, and olfatory epithelium because they connect directly with the brain without any intermediate nerve fibers. The human brain is the interpreter of the senses and the controller of movement, breathing, temperature, hunger and every process that regulates our body. But as we heard earlier, our current brain wasn't always this way. Sometime between 500 and 600 million years ago, our ancestors were small worm-like creatures with nervous systems that only had sensing cells directly connected to movement cells. They did not need a brain because life was simple. They swam in the water with very basic movements and ate whatever happened to drift into their mouths. They did not have senses, so they couldn't see, hear, taste, nor smell. This worked well until predators arose. The group of neurons that were responsible for movement evolved into what today is the spinal cord, and a lump of cells appeared at one end of the body to control some new and needed functionality. This lump is the predecessor to the brain stem. This happened during the Cambrian period when predators developed better and faster movement to eat those who are trying to survive, while the prey developed better ways to sense the environment so they can get away from these predators. In her book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett explains this elegantly, quote, Once creatures could sense at a distance and make more sophisticated movements, evolution favored those who performed those tasks efficiently. If they chase a meal but move too slowly, something else caught the meal and ate it first. If they burnt up energy fleeing from a potential threat that never arrived, they wasted resources that they may have needed later, unquote. Basically, survival became not only a function of new sensory or motor skills, it became a function of energy budgeting and predicting the future based on past experiences. Feldman Barrett tells us that a creature that prepared its movement before the predator struck was more likely to survive than a creature that reacted to a predator's move. This process of energy budgeting is called allostasis, and it means, automatically predicting and preparing to meet the body's needs before they arise. Fast forward a few million years, and now we have creatures with all kinds of new internal systems. Cardiovascular systems, immune systems, more complex digestive systems, and so on. With this complexity, these creatures needed more than a clump of cells to manage all these processes. They needed a brain. As evolution worked its magic, previous lumps of brain cells were not replaced with new ones. Feldman Barrett teaches us that instead, as the brain grew, regions expanded and subdivided to redistribute its responsibilities. This segregating and integrating among brain regions creates a more complex brain that can control larger and more complex bodies. In other words, our brain does not have multiple layers on top of each other as the triune model alludes. In this popular but outdated model, our brain has three layers, the reptilian or survival brain, the mammalian or limbic brain, and the neocortex or rational brain. Today, we know that this model is not an accurate representation. Today we know we have one brain that over time has reorganized and redistributed itself to meet the new needs of an evolving body. With this background, we can now address the question, what is the human brain for? This may surprise you, but it is not for thinking, not for rationality, not for emotions, nor creativity, imagination, compassion, nor empathy. Feldman Barrett tells us that the brain's most important job is to manage allostasis, that is, to manage our energy budget by predicting our energy needs before they arise, using past experiences so we can move through this world efficiently and survive. We have a brain to produce adaptable and complex movements, because movement is the only way to affect the external environment. Even the world inside our bodies depends on movement. Blood flow, breathing, digestion, hormonal flow, cellular respiration, the list goes on and on. Motion is important and essential. At the lowest level, all of this is done with a simple evolutionary goal. Successful reproduction to pass our genes to the next generation. Thought number three, how does the human brain work? If you ask neuroscientists around the world how the human brain works, it'll be consensus that although we know much more than ever before, we are still very much in the dark. So what do we know? Here's a summary. We know that our brain is constantly processing information and learning a model of the world around us. In his book, A Thousand Brains, Jeff Hawkins tells us that learning is not just relegated to what we are taught in school. We have to learn how objects behave, from how a door opens and closes, to how to open and close an app on our smartphone. We need to learn where objects are located in the world, along with learning abstract concepts like government, compassion, and mathematics, all while learning tens of thousands of words. Our genes may determine things like eating and respond to pain. But aside from that, everything else we know is learned. Hawkins teaches us that all this information is not just stored and piled up in the brain as facts, but instead is organized in a way that reflects a structure of the world and everything in it. In other words, the brain creates a model of the world. It sees and senses. It is through this model that the brain can consolidate interdependent sensory inputs into a singular experience. This model can also help us understand why identical sensory inputs can lead to very distinct set of beliefs and conclusions. But what makes this very interesting and challenging for us is not that the brain models the world around us, but that the model is a predictive model that is constantly and forever being tuned. Hawkins explains this well in the third chapter of his book. Quote, prediction is not something the brain does every now and then. It is an intrinsic property that never stops and it serves an essential role in learning. When the brain predictions are verified, That means the brain's model of the world is accurate, while a misprediction causes you to attend to the error and update the model. When we are born, our brain knows almost nothing. It doesn't know any words, what buildings are like, or how a computer works. At birth, the brain is structured to see, hear, and learn, but it doesn't know what it will see, hear, or learn. Through experience, it learns a rich and complicated model of the world," unquote. Some of this should be obvious from observing other animals. Other mammals can be fairly independent soon after birth while we are helpless for years. In his book, The Brain, The Story of You, David Eagleman tells us that humans are born unfinished. We need about a year to learn to walk, about three more years to speak somewhat coherently, and several more to take care of ourselves while other mammals are self-sufficient far sooner. Even though this seems advantageous for other species, it is in fact a limitation. Baby animals develop quickly because their brains are wired according to pre-programmed routines, but that preparedness comes at the expense of flexibility. For instance, if a hippo found itself on the Arctic tundra, it would struggle to adapt. Arriving with a prearranged brain only works well in a particular ecosystem, but outside of that environment, the animal would struggle to thrive. Humans, on the other hand, can thrive in many diverse ecosystems. This is because, instead of arriving fully pre-programmed, humans arrive unfinished, which allows the human brain to be shaped by the details of life experiences. Egelman states that, Quote, at birth, a baby's neurons are disparate and unconnected. And in the first two years of life, they begin connecting up extremely rapidly as they take in sensory information. By the age of two, a child has over 100 trillion connections or synapses, which is double the number an adult has and far more than it needs. Unquote. The brain then begins a strategy of neural pruning, which leads to the removal of 50% of the synapses. Basically, synapses stimulated by experiences are strengthened. Conversely, synapses are weakened if they aren't useful and eventually are eliminated. Imagine a forest with many trails. If over time, only a few of those trails are walked on, The rest will eventually be overgrown and disappear. Egeman tells us that the process of becoming who you are is defined by eliminating the possibilities that were already present. He says, quote, you become who you are not because of what grows in your brain, but because of what is removed, unquote. As we grow, we engage in this perpetual dance of being shaped by our environment while we also shape the environment around us, and our ever-evolving brain is at the center of that dance. Our day-to-day becomes the direct result of the experiences and interactions that fill our waking hours. Our brain makes sense of our environment by processing sensory data and making decisions for us before we are even aware of them. In their book, Brainwash, Drs. David and Austin Perlmutter teach us the fundamentals of this process as we understand it today. Quote, our brains use neurotransmitters and hormones to transfer and modify messages across the brain and body. Neurotransmitters and hormones are molecules that work together, driving feelings of joy, anger, bliss, hunger, lust, and desire. These molecules are affected and influenced by food, sleep, physical movement, and interactions with the environment and other people. They are also affected by stress, feelings of gratitude, empathy, and compassion. As neurotransmitters and hormones do their work, connections in our brain become stronger or weaker as a function of the activities we choose to engage or not engage in. The process is at the center of one of the most important discoveries in neuroscience, neuroplasticity. To say that the brain is plastic means that it can reorganize itself by making new connections or making existing connections stronger. It means that the brain is pliable, impressionable, and multiple. Dr. Michael Merzenich, a pioneer in the field of neuroplasticity, explains it as follows, quote, Experience coupled with attention leads to physical changes in the structure and functioning of our nervous system. This leaves us with a clear physiological fact. Moment by moment, we choose and sculpt how our ever-changing minds will work. We choose who we will be in the very next moment in a very real sense. And these choices are left embossed in physical form in our material selves," unquote. This is a powerful and sobering discovery because it can either work to our advantage or work completely against us. Every time you engage in a new experience, the brain changes itself to accommodate this new experience. And the more you engage in any particular activity, the stronger the connections needed to perform that activity become. And this is true whether the activity is something good for you or bad for you. As Dr. Sperlmutter state in their book, if we choose to engage in activities that bombard us with negativity or provoke a sense of fear, our brains will be rewired to respond to this negativity and fear-driven state. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, probably says it best, quote, the brain we develop reflects the life we lead. Unquote. I leave you with this thought, our brain is a marvel of evolution and its primary function is to manage our energy budget through prediction and past experiences. It does so by creating a model of the world, verifying it and updating it constantly. The quality of experiences we expose ourselves to matters as they are used to verify and or update this model. So what are you gonna do? Are you gonna fill your life with negative fear-based narratives that validate a potentially flawed model of the world you may have? Or are you going to expose yourself and update your model with new, positive, challenging, and enriching experiences? Science tells us that it doesn't matter how old you are. You can always update your model of the world.